Welcome back. You're listening to Examining Christmas, a Bible study by Jason Lee Willis. In previous episodes, we looked at the family tree and the prophecy of the Christ. Today, we look into the woman who gave birth to the Messiah, Mary. The mystery of Mary has existed almost as long as Christianity. Who was this woman that gave birth to the Christ? Why was she chosen? What would her life have been like? What happened to her later in life? The Gospels only scratch the surface of answering our questions, and as a result, there are all sorts of theories and traditions that have collected through two millennia. Before we get to Luke's account, let's take a look at some of the other sources for information about Mary. In episode one, I brought up the genealogies of Jesus. The early church historian Eusebius cited another scholar by the name of Africanus, who offered a theory. After connecting Grandpa Jacob and Healy as brothers, Eusebius claimed that Mary would have belonged to the same tribe as Joseph based on Mosaic laws concerning intertribal marriage. With this theory, Mary is also in the line of King David, and thus the Lys, despite not mentioning her, would also have been her family tree of sorts. There must also be a bit of skepticism about the absolute nature of this Mosaic law. Things rarely go according to the letter of the law. After all, we have all sorts of tainted blood mentioned in the story of the Scarlet Thread. So being of the house of David can only be seen as probable. There are actually two apocryphal books that came out of the early Christian church that add all sorts of lore to Mary's story. Before I explain, I have to be clear about what an apocryphal book is. If you flip on the History Channel, you often hear about the lost books of the Bible, as if something hidden or missing has been suddenly discovered. This might not be the case. Let's talk about the canon first. The Bible as we know it today has pretty much had the same books since Constantine allowed the Christian church to come out of the shadows. To crudely summarize the complicated events of the time, Emperor Constantine wanted to understand what it meant to be Christian. One of the byproducts of this era was a canon of books that the church fathers felt every Christian should know. Centuries later, Reformation scholars like Luther disputed a couple of the books that didn't really include any God messages, like Maccabees, and suggested to downgrade them to just being apocryphal. Thus, a second level of religious texts are considered to be apocryphal. Uh, along with all the texts Luther felt were legit but not really worthy of the canon, were many older books that existed back in the time of Constantine. These apocryphal books were not included for a variety of reasons. Some were simply not divinely inspired. Some of them were widely read by a certain region, but not another, who saw them as too foreign. Others simply had origin issues, where there was too much uncertainty about translation or authorship. As a result, these books were read by scholars, but not distributed to the churches. A step lower in reverence were the 
oh boy, big word alert, uh, pseudepigraphical <laughs> texts. Uh, these books meant falsely ascribed. In other words, these books have serious authorship issues. Either the author was anonymous or it was ascribed to someone who could not have written it. In many cases, these historic books had the phone tree issue where there were just too many variations on the text to ever be able to determine which one was the legit version. Some New Testament letters include references to some of these texts. The worst type of text, in my view, are the Gnostic texts. These are the texts that the cable television news shows often dress up as Christian texts when they are anything but. The Gnostics were a dangerous threat to the early church that affected them as early as the Book of Acts, read the Simon the Mega story, and as late as the Book of Revelation, uh, the Nicolaitan story. The Gnostics used the names of Christian leaders and put Christian labels on a religion that was heretical and contrary to the teachings of Jesus. This threat even existed in the time of forming the canon, which is why it was important to define Christianity, so you knew if you were being duped. So there are two ancient texts, the Gospel of the Birth of Mary and the Protoevangelion of James, that were read and known by early church fathers, but not included in the Bible. I assumed there were good reasons not to continue to hand them down through the generations. Even though these two books are not considered to be gospel, they were certainly interesting to take a peek at. Why peek? There are many traditional ideas about Christmas that still exist that cannot be found in the Gospels. Do you picture Joseph as an older man? Does your Christmas card involve beams of light in a cave? Do your wise men go to a house in Bethlehem? If yes, where did you get these ideas? The Gospel of the Birth of Mary is an old text passed around in Christian churches that was attributed to Matthew, but it doesn't mean it was that Matthew. It existed in the 4th century and could be found by many religious scholars of the time. Even though it didn't become canon, early church fathers like St. Jerome knew of it, whether it was seen favorably or utterly dismissed. The Gospel of the Birth of Mary tells that Mary came from the house of David instead of being from the house of Levi. And again, Levi, the Levites, were the high priest material. It does include a similar angel announcement, uh, but to Mary's parents, who were told she would bear the Christ. Because of this, Mary was sent to the temple and allowed to visit the holiest of holies. You know, flagrant violation of code and laws, but... Gah. Okay, <laughs> she was allowed this because she miraculously floated up the temple stairs as a sign of her divine stamp of approval. While in the temple, she was prepped for her role by the Ark. Yes, it was still there? Until the day Joseph arrived, well advanced in years, and won her hand in a strange contest that is reminiscent of drawing straws on their shepherd staffs. 
From betrothal, Joseph takes her to Nazareth, where she conceives the Christ. It also clearly says how Joseph never had sex with her then or later in the marriage. Again, I include the story not to claim it as right or wrong, but to simply show you where some very old traditions find their roots. The Protoevangelion of James is another apocryphal book believed to be written around the year AD 145. Which James wrote it? The James who is beheaded early in the book of Acts? The James who is considered the brother of Jesus? Also known as James the Just? Didn't he die in Jerusalem? Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD? Um, some other James. Ah, now, uh, do you see why it is considered to be apocryphal? Along with the authorship issues, there were multiple problems in the text that didn't jive with custom or scripture. So we are left with an 1,800-year-old text of Mary that may or may not be accurate. So let's peek. Early on, we learn that Mary's parents were a rich man named Joachim and a barren woman named Anna. After feasting and prayer, an angel announces that they will have an important child. Mary, who is then educated by angels in the temple. Later, when she is older, there is a strange competition for her hand in marriage. Ultimately, an old widower by the name of Joseph had a dove burst from his staff and land on his head that signified that he was selected to be Mary's husband. The story continues and adds the visit by Gabriel, who spoke out of a pitcher of water. In this account, Joseph returns from a building project to find Mary six months pregnant. Annas, the high priest, then brings both Mary and Joseph to trial, which ultimately ends with drinking magic poison water, which reveals she was speaking the truth. Just before the birth, the decree is made involving registering in Bethlehem. So Joseph complains about registering all of his sons, like James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, along with Mary. They travel through a desert, and upon arriving in Bethlehem, they find a cave for the birth. Instead of giving birth the traditional way, a bright cloud wraps around Mary, and with the help of a midwife named Salome, poof, Jesus! In this version, the Magi show up in Bethlehem, causing commotion and gaining Herod's attention, who sent them right back to Bethlehem so he could learn the location of Christ. In this version, a single bright star shone so brightly that none of the other stars could be seen, and that allowed them to find the cave, where this really bright star stood upon. Just like in the Gospel account, there was a warning, but this version has Mary receiving the warning. At this point, she hid him in a manger in an ox stall. Elizabeth, who apparently lives in Bethlehem, also hides baby John by commanding the mountain to hide her and the baby John. Unfortunately, Zacharias is murdered by Herod's troops at the stairs of the temple and is replaced by Simeon. Wow, <laughs> it is both awesome yet so wrong at the same time. 
now that we've looked at some of the lore sources for Mary, let's look at the details that Luke gives us in his gospel. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The first thing to notice is that this is the same angel sent to Zacharias and Elizabeth six months earlier. If Zacharias was serving in the holiest of holies for his encounter, John was conceived around September. Here we are, six months later, when Mary is about to conceive, which puts us around March, almost the Passover. I bring this up now in order to argue the birth date later. Yes, nine months after March will be December. You should know that Nazareth was not an ancient town like Jerusalem or even Bethlehem. Nazareth was a worker's town that was filled with Jews who worked for various Roman slash Herod building projects in the area. As a result, it earned the same reputation as the towns in our Old West or even modern North Dakota. It was not known for being anything close to fanatic or even very religious. Another strange thing to note in this opening section is how well did Mary and Joseph know each other? How long did they even know each other? I've read, I think it is even in Leviticus, that good Jewish young people were encouraged to marry within their tribes. While this might be a bit strange to us, it probably helped maintain tribal identity. However, at this time, the northern tribes had almost vanished into the wind, leaving the tribes of Judah, Benjamin, and Levi as the most dominant tribes. So most teens in those days really didn't have issues keeping it within the tribe. King David came from the tribe of Judah, specifically in Bethlehem. But by this time, most Jews living in Galilee or Judea were from the same tribe of Judah. Does this mean Mary also came from the line of David? Or was she just another Jew from the tribe of Judah? One question that I have here about this section is, what was a Davidic Jew doing in Nazareth? In a little bit, we'll see Joseph identify Bethlehem as his hometown. So does this mean he'd only recently gone to Bethlehem? Had his family been there for a hundred years or for two years? What caused somebody from a branch of the royal family to migrate so far north from home? Luke continues, And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. This single verse is where the idea of the Immaculate Conception originates. Mary won the lottery ticket. The Gabriel showed up to announce she'd won the prize. Her womb would bring the Christ into the world. The Immaculate Conception doesn't just mean that Mary was a virgin, aka Immaculate. 
The official dogma means that Mary was without sin. Is this stretching the Lord is with thee too far? Can highly favored actually mean sinless? From just Luke, this argument is a bit tenuous. But if you look back at the lore, the divine nature of Mary is embedded into both the Gospel of the Birth of Mary and the Protevangelian accounts. It wasn't until 1854, with Pope Pius IX, that it was officially asserted that Mary did not carry original sin. Sound too Catholic? Well, read what Luther wrote about the issue. Mary is full of grace, proclaiming to be entirely without sin. God's grace fills her with everything good and makes her devoid of all evil. God is with her, meaning that all she did or left undone is divine, and the action of God is in her. Moreover, God guided and protected her from all that might be hurtful to her. Regardless of how you feel about the issue, one thing is pretty clear. Mary was special. Humanity had waited since the days of Adam and Eve for the fulfillment of God's promise. And finally, Gabriel showed up to tell her she was the one. Luke continues, verse 29. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And, behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. I love Mary's humility in her reaction. Perhaps it is pretty scary for Gabriel to visit you, but look at how she doesn't give him any backtalk um, compared to Zacharias. Uh, she doesn't question. She doesn't say, but, but, but. She simply accepts it. Dang. <laughs> she certainly was troubled, um, concerned, freaked out. Um, after all, she was a betrothed virgin about to be pregnant. That's big trouble. When she reflects on the manner of the greeting, it makes it seem as if she understands the big picture, which Zacharias didn't, instead of her personal concerns. That's how you win the lottery, I guess. If you wanted to argue against the Immaculate Conception idea, then verse 30 could give you support. Instead of being born or destined, Gabriel declares that she has found favor with God. This slightly implies that it was something to be searched for or discovered. After being found, then Gabriel arrives. This is all splitting hairs. There is another curious word that has a dramatic impact on how you read the passage. It is a future tense word. Will. You will conceive. In other words... This is not a pregnancy stick moment with a plus or a minus. Gabriel is not there to give Mary a high five and congrats. Gabriel is there telling her what will happen in her near future. Luke continues with verse 32. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God 
will give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. Well, if Mary wasn't certain, she is now. This wasn't going to be a miracle baby like John the Baptist. She was going to give birth to the Son of God. The divine would be made flesh. Yet the second half must have given her real pause. Gabriel mentions how Jesus would also get the throne of David and rule over Israel, which at the time was mostly just Judah. Instead of divine prophecy, she gets a little prophecy involving the physical world, just not in her lifetime. This leads her to ask a few important questions. Verse 34. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, seeing I know not a man? Mary is fairly pragmatic here. She admits a basic biological problem. She hasn't had sex, like Zacharias and Elizabeth, for her miracle to happen. Or perhaps she is admitting hereditary issue. Does this mean she is not an heir of David? If she had first married Joseph, then this problem would have been quite obvious and easy. The son of Joseph had a claim to the throne. Did Mary? Is this why she asked her question? Luke continues, verse 35. And the angel answered her and said to her, The Holy Ghost, or Spirit, will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Okay, one, the Holy Spirit. One, the highest. One, Son of God. One plus one plus one equals three. Are you kidding me? Earlier, I mentioned how Gabriel was speaking about the future. In this verse, the future tense is used three times. If you are picturing a beam of light through a window, or Mary touching her belly to feel a flutter, hold the press. Gabriel is prepping her for something that is about to happen. And it's really big. The Trinity. Before you go and picture Mary in a bed at night, next to a well, or walking in a field, let's take a trip back in time to review a similar moment. Now, according to John's Gospel, twice, <laughs> no one has ever seen God. Despite all the other appearances in the Old Testament, John clarifies that no one but Jesus has ever really seen the actual God. The closest moment I can think of is Moses. Remember him going up to the top of Mount Horeb slash Sinai? Um, before going to the pinnacle, he puts rocks around the circumference of the mountain so that none of the Hebrews would get too close and drop dead. Why would they drop dead? Because they were too full of sin to stand in the presence of God. That is quite a big safe zone. Moses also had to brace himself so that the violence of the encounter didn't sweep him away. Even the Hebrews below asked Moses to speak to God because they were too afraid to hear God themselves. That's how scary this moment was. 
that was just the presence of God. According to Gabriel, the Holy Spirit would soon come upon her. According to Gabriel, the highest was coming to overshadow Mary. Remember what happened when God overshadowed Moses? Not only that, but the Christ, who has existed since the beginning, and perhaps was the face of God in the Old Testament, was also going to be there. This wasn't a congratulation. This was a warning. Now, I stopped in the middle of Gabriel's speech, which lasted less than a minute. Gabriel continues to say, verse 36, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For with God nothing is impossible. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed her. And Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste. It is verse 39 that intrigues me. As soon as the angel departs, Mary leaves. Different English translations use different words like hurried, instantly, or hurriedly, which seem to universally imply left quickly. Did she tell others? Did she pack? Did she wait for a caravan? Did she wait for her whole family to leave for the Passover? I don't have answers for these questions, but I do know she left in a hurry. Why would she leave in a hurry? If this Trinity moment happened while she was still in Nazareth, what would have happened? First, it would not have been discreet. When God showed up for Moses, it scared the tar out of the Hebrews far below in the valley. It was a light show. Plus, Nazareth already had a reputation of being an ungodly town. If the conception happened in the town, this would have endangered lives. People would have dropped dead just by being too close to Mary when God visited her. So the departing immediately aspect is revealing. But where she went is also important. The town of Nazareth is strategically located. To the north, there were thriving Roman centers that fed the economy. To the west, the king's highway provided an ancient route from Egypt to Damascus. This road, along the flat coastal lands, allowed a fairly quick trip to Judea and Jerusalem. To the east, Nazareth connected to a mountain range that acted as a spine that paralleled the Jordan River all the way south. So verse 39 gives a bit of an idea the route Mary took to get there. She went straight south and stayed in the mountains. To me, this seems to eliminate both the caravan idea and the family trip idea. This route was harder and longer. In the mountains, or hill country, she was able to covertly travel the 70 miles or so to wherever Elizabeth lived. So, we have her route, but the one thing that isn't explained is when did the Trinity moment happen? When did the conception happen? 
When she shows up in Judea a few days later, Elizabeth and prenatal John know the Christ is inside of Mary. If it didn't happen in Nazareth, and it was done by the time she got to Judea, it had to happen somewhere along the way. I believe she needed isolation. The vague hill country would certainly provide that. It is easy to explain the phrase hill country as Judea, the entire mountain range or the hills around Nazareth. Or perhaps it is just the opposite of obvious, the flat roads. However, sandwiched between two foothills is a place that might have guaranteed isolation, the Valley of Megiddo. Yes, the famed Armageddon location is just below the hill where Nazareth is built. Today, it is a flat, fertile agricultural area. Back then, it was shunned. In previous centuries, the Valley of Megiddo was an evil place where thousands of soldiers lost their lives on the battlefield. You can see Josiah or Ezekiel 37. Jews really did their best to avoid the place. In the future, this is also the location where Jesus will return to defeat the armies of the Antichrist. Epic spot, huh? So what, and this is a stretch, what if this is where Christ came into our world? Was it on the way to Judea? Certainly. Would it have been isolated? Yes. Does it hold symbolic significance? Yep. Is there anything else between there and Judea on par with it? Nope. Now, I would like to think Mary had a predestination sort of confidence after this Trinity moment that would have allowed a young woman to confidently know she'd get there safe. It shall be. Mary knew she was going to give birth and had nothing to fear. You've been listening to Jason Lee Willis's podcast series, Examining Christmas. The music you've heard today is from YouTube's audio library. I hope you can join me again for episode four, Quite Contrary. Until we meet again. <laughs>